sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. It's the most wonderful time of the Yes, yes, it is that time, and we're going to be presenting something a bit different for the uh, holiday this time around, or actually not that different from what we did for our Christmas episode last year. Other than our usual look at uh, folklore and history, we will, again, enjoy a bit of supernatural storytelling, a custom which in older times was considered traditional for this time of year. Our English listeners will be uh, perhaps a, a bit more familiar with all this than those listening in America, but even here in the U.S., we have vestiges of uh, the custom, like the uh, curious line in our familiar Christmas song. Out in the snow, there'll be scary ghost stories. Already in 1963, when It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year was written, the inclusion of Christmas ghost stories was probably a little confusing to most American listeners. Perhaps the lyricist uh, Edward Pola, an immigrant from Hungary, recalled such a thing from his old world childhood, but for Americans, the only point of reference for something like this would be the Spectres in Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol. But Dickens was uh, hardly unique in summoning his ghost to Christmas, nor was that story the only one he told which involved supernatural uh, holiday happenings. A Christmas Carol, published in 1843, was simply the most successful version of uh, Dickens' uh, pet theme of misanthropes having their misanthropy adjusted in time for the holidays. Uh, There were actually five publications, which Dickens called his Christmas books, and while ghosts appear in the best known of these as uh, figures who serve to somehow redeem an uncharitable character, uh, Dickens also assigned that duty to goblins, as in his immediate follow-up to A Christmas Carol, 1844's The Chimes, a goblin story of some bells that rang an old year out and a new year in. Tonight, we'll be hearing about another, earlier goblin from Dickens' Christmas story, The Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. Uh, Sexton, of course, is the individual responsible for maintaining a church building and churchyard and Maintaining the latter would also involve digging graves, and because this duty is the focus of uh, the story, I took the liberty of naming our episode with the more familiar name, Gravedigger. I thought it might have a bit more appeal that way also. In any case, the story isn't published under this or that actual title, as it's merely an extracted passage from another work, a tale narrated by a character in Dickens' first novella, The Pickwick Papers. one of uh, several stories told in a fireside Christmas banquet scene. 
Written seven years before A Christmas Carol, tonight's Goblin story already contains something of the bare bones of Dickens' more celebrated 1844 Christmas story. And a word about our narrator and very special guest from the other side, Boris Karloff. It seems uh, Mr. Karloff in 1962 recorded a version of this story on an out-of-print record I recently stumbled upon. I've done a little uh, festive decorating of the original recording to make it more our own, adding background music and effects and hoping it will enhance your enjoyment. Before Uncle Boris begins, I'd like to take a moment to thank those who have uh, supported Bone and Sickle throughout 2019. The show is particularly labor-intensive to produce, and without your uh, Patreon donations, the whole teetering venture would certainly collapse. I'd like to offer a special thanks to our most recent patron saints, Sean Tall, Stefan Steinecke, Nicole Rivette, Nadia Astorga, Kieran Stanlowski, Adam Tong, Lydia Lim, Helen Neal, Johnny Peterson, and Stella B. Thank you all so much. And thank you also to Ms. Jocelyn for her very kind review on Apple Podcasts. I'll sign off for this episode now and let you enjoy The Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. In an old abbey town down in this part of the country a long, long while ago, so long that the story must be a true one, there officiated a sexton and gravedigger in the churchyard, one Gabriel Grubb. It by no means follows that because a man is a sexton and constantly surrounded by the emblems of mortality, therefore he should be a morose and melancholy man. Your undertakers are the merriest fellows in the world. But notwithstanding precedence to the contrary, Gabriel Grubb was an ill-conditioned, cross-grained, surly fellow, a morose and lonely man, who consorted with nobody but himself and an old wicker bottle which fitted into his large, deep waistcoat pocket, and who eyed each merry face as it passed him by with such a deep scowl of malice and ill-humour as it was difficult to meet without feeling something the worse for. A little before twilight, one Christmas Eve, Gabriel shouldered his spade, lighted his lantern, and betook himself towards the old churchyard, for he got a grave to finish by next morning. As he went his way up the ancient street, he saw the cheerful light of the blazing fires gleam through the old casements, and heard the loud laughter and the cheerful shouts of those who were assembled around them. He marked the bustling preparations for next day's cheer and smelled the numerous savoury odours consequent thereupon as they steamed up from the kitchen windows in clouds. All this was gall and wormwood to the heart of Gabriel Grubb. And when groups of children bounded out of the houses and tripped across the road, Gabriel smiled grimly and clutched the handle of his spade with a firmer grasp. He thought of measles, scarlet fever, thrush, whooping cough, and a good many other sources of consolation besides. In this happy frame of mind, Gabriel strolled along until he turned into the dark lane which led to the churchyard. 
Now, Gabriel had been looking forward to reaching the dark lane because it was, generally speaking, a nice, gloomy, mournful place into which the townspeople did not much care to go. Consequently, he was not a little indignant to hear a young urchin roaring out some jolly song about a Merry Christmas in this very sanctuary, which had been called Coffin Lane ever since the days of the old abbey. So Gabriel waited till the boy came up, and they dodged him into a corner and wrapped him over the head with his lantern five or six times just to teach him to modulate his voice. And as the boy hurried away with his hand to his head, singing quite a different sort of tune, Gabriel Grubb chuckled very heartily to himself and entered the churchyard, locking the gate behind him. He took off his coat, set down his lantern, and getting into the unfinished grave, worked at it for an hour or so with right good will. The earth was hardened with the frost, and it was no very easy matter to break it up and shovel it out. But he was so well pleased with having stopped the small boy's singing that he took little heed of the scanty progress he had made and looked down into the grave when he had finished his work for the night with grim satisfaction, murmuring as he gathered up his things. Brave lodgings for one, brave lodgings for one, a few feet of cold earth when life is done. A stone at the head, a stone at the feet, a rich juicy meal for the worms to eat. Rank grass overhead and damp clay around. Brave lodgings for one, these in holy ground. <laughs> Gabriel Grubb laughed as he sat himself down on a flat tombstone, which was a favorite resting place of his, and drew forth his wicker bottle. A coffin at Christmas, a Christmas box. <laughs> Ho, 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 repeated a voice that sounded close behind him. Gabriel paused in some alarm in the act of raising the wicker bottle to his lips and looked around. The cold hoar-frost glistened on the tombstones. The snow lay hard and crisp upon the ground and spread over the thickly strewn mounds of earth so white and smooth a cover that it seemed as if corpses lay there hidden only by their winding sheets. Not the faintest rustle broke the profound tranquility of the solemn scene. It was the echo, said Gabriel Grubb, raising the bottle to his lips again. It was not, said a deep voice. Gabriel started up and stood rooted to the spot with astonishment and terror, for his eyes rested on a form that made his blood run cold. Seated on an upright tombstone close to him was a strange, unearthly figure whom Gabriel felt at once was no being of this world. His long, fantastic legs, which might have reached the ground, were cocked up and crossed after a quaint, fantastic fashion. His sinewy arms were bare and his hands rested on his knees. On his short, round body, he wore a close covering, ornamented with small slashes. A short coat dangled at his back. The collar was cut into curious peaks, which served the goblin in lieu of ruff or neckerchief. And his shoes curled up at his toes into long points. On his head, he wore a broad-brimmed sugar-loafed hat garnished with a single feather. 
The hat was covered with the white frost, and the goblin looked as if he had sat on the same tombstone very comfortably for two or three hundred years. He was sitting perfectly still. His tongue was put out as if in derision, and he was grinning at Gabriel Grubb with such a grin as only a goblin could call up. It was not the echoes, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb was paralyzed and could make no reply. What do you do here on Christmas Eve, said the goblin sternly. I, I came to dig a grave, sir. What man wanders among graves and churchyards on such a night as this, cried the goblin. Gabriel Grubb! A wild chorus of voices seemed to fill the churchyard. Gabriel looked fearfully around. Nothing was to be seen. What have you got in that bottle? said the goblin. Holland, sir, replied the sexton, trembling more than ever, for he had bought it of the smugglers, and he thought perhaps his questioner might be in the excise department of the goblins. Who drinks Hollands alone and in a churchyard on such a night as this? said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! exclaimed the wild voices again. The goblin leered maliciously at the terrified sexton, then raising his voice exclaimed, And who then is our fair and lawful prize? Gabriel Grubb! Goblin grinned a broader grin than before, as he said. Well, Gabriel, what do you say to this? The sexton gasped for breath. It's, it's, it's very curious, sir. Very curious and, and, and very pretty, but, but I, I think I'll go back and finish my work, sir, if you please. Work? What work? The grave, sir. Making a grave. Oh! A grave, eh? Who makes grave at a time when all other men are merry and takes a pleasure in it? Gabriel Grubb! Gabriel Grubb! I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel. I'm afraid my friends want you. And a favor, sir, I... I don't think they can, sir. They, they don't know me, sir. I don't think the gentlemen have ever seen me, sir. Oh, yes, they have. We know the man with a sulky face and grim scowl that came down the street tonight, throwing his evil looks at the children and grasping his burying spade the tighter. We know the man who struck the boy in the envious malice of his heart, because the boy could be merry and he could not. We know him. We know him. Ha, 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 ha. I'm afraid I must leave you, sir, said the sexton, making an effort to move. Leave us? Gabriel Grubb going to leave us? Ha! As the goblin laughed, the sexton observed for one instant a brilliant illumination within the windows of the church as if the whole building were lighted up. 
he disappeared. The organ pealed forth a lively air, and whole troops of goblins, the very counterpart of the first one, poured into the churchyard and began playing at leapfrog with the tombstones, never stopping for an instant to take breath, one after the other with the most marvellous dexterity. At last the game reached to a most exciting pitch. The organ played quicker and quicker, the goblins leaped faster and faster, coiling themselves up, rolling head over heels upon the ground and bounding over the tombstones like footballs. The sexton's brain whirled around with the rapidity of the motion he beheld, and his legs reeled beneath him as the spirits flew before his eyes, when the goblin king, suddenly darting towards him, laid his hand upon his collar and sank with him through the earth. When Gabriel Grubb had had time to catch his breath, he found himself in what appeared to be a large cavern, surrounded on all sides by crowds of goblins, ugly and grim. In the center of the room, on an elevated seat, was stationed his friend of the churchyard. Cold tonight, said the king of the goblins. Very cold. Mm, a glass of something warm here. At this command, Half a dozen officious goblins, with a perpetual smile upon their faces, hastily disappeared and presently returned with a goblet of liquid fire which they presented to the king. Ah, this warms one indeed. Bring a bumper of the same for Mr. Grubber. It was in vain for the unfortunate sexton to protest that he, he, he was not in the habit of taking anything warm at night. One of the goblins held him, while another poured the blazing liquid down his throat. And the whole assembly screeched with laughter as he coughed and choked and wiped away the tears that gushed plentifully from his eyes after swallowing a burning draught. And now, said the king, fantastically poking the taper corner of his sugarloaf hat into the sexton's eye and thereby occasioning him the most exquisite pain. And now, show the man of misery and gloom a few of the pictures from our own great storehouse. As the goblin said this, a thick cloud which obscured the remoter end of the cavern rolled gradually away and disclosed, apparently at a great distance, a small and scantily furnished but neat and clean apartment. A crowd of little children were gathered around a bright fire, clinging to their mother's gown and gambling around her chair. The mother occasionally rose and drew aside the window curtain as if to look for some expected object. A knock was heard at the door. The mother opened it, and the children crowded round her and clapped their hands for joy as their father it. He was wet and weary and shook the snow from his garments as the children crowded round him. Then, as he sat down to his meal before the fire, the children climbed upon his knee and the mother sat by his side and all seemed happiness and comfort. But a change came upon the view almost imperceptibly. The scene was altered to a small bedroom where the fairest and youngest child lay dying. The roses had fled from his cheek and the light from his eye. 
And even as the sexton looked upon him with an interest he had never known or felt before, he died. His younger brothers and sisters crowded around his little bed and seized his tiny hand, so cold and heavy, but, but they shrank back from its touch and looked with awe on his infant face for calm and tranquil as it was and sleeping in rest and peace as the beautiful child seemed to be, they saw that he was dead and knew that he was an angel looking down upon and blessing them from a bright and happy heaven. Again the light cloud passed across the picture and again the subject changed. The mother and father were old and helpless now and and the number of those about them was diminished more than half. But content and cheerfulness sat on every face and beamed in every eye as they crowded round the fireside and told and listened to old stories of earlier and bygone days. Slowly, peacefully, the father sank into the grave and soon after, the sharer of all his cares and troubles followed him to a place of rest. The few who yet survived them kneeled by their tomb and watered the green turf which covered it with their tears, and then rose and turned away, sadly and mournfully, but not with bitter cries or despairing lamentations, for they knew that they should one day meet again. And so once more they mixed with the busy world and their content and cheerfulness were restored. The cloud settled upon the picture and... What do you think of that? said the goblin, turning his large face towards Gabriel Grubb. Gabriel murmured out something about its being very pretty and looked somewhat ashamed as the goblin bent his fiery eyes upon him. You, a miserable man, said the goblin. You! He appeared disposed to add more, but indignation choked his utterance. So he lifted up one of his very pliable legs and flourishing it above his head a little to ensure his aim, administered a good sound kick to Gabriel Grubb. Immediately after which, all the goblins in waiting crowded round the wretched sexton and kicked him without mercy. Enough! Show him some more! At these words, the cloud was dispelled, and a rich and beautiful landscape was disclosed to view. There is just such another to this very day within half a mile of the old abbey town. The sun shone out from the clear blue sky. The water sparkled beneath his rays and the trees looked greener and the flowers more gay beneath its cheering influence. The water rippled on with a pleasant sound. The trees rustled in the light wind that murmured among their leaves and the birds sang upon the boughs and the lark caroled on high her welcome to the morning. Man walked forth, elated with the scene, and all was brightness and splendor. You, a miserable man, said the king of the goblins in a more contemptuous tone than before. 
And again the king of the goblins gave his leg a flourish, and again it descended on the shoulders of the sexton, and again the attendant goblins imitated the example of their chief. Many a time the cloud came and went, and many a lesson it taught to Gabriel Grubb, who, although his shoulders smarted with pain from the frequent applications of the goblins' feet thereunto, looked on with an interest that nothing could diminish. He saw that the sweet face of nature was a never-failing source of cheerfulness and joy. He saw those who had been delicately nurtured and tenderly brought up, cheerful under privations and superior to suffering that would have crushed many of a rougher grain, because they bore within their own bosoms the materials of happiness, contentment and peace. And he saw that women the tenderest and most fragile of all God's creatures, where they often is superior to sorrow, adversity, and distress. And he saw that it was because they bore in their own hearts an inexhaustible wellspring of affection and devotion. And above all, he saw that men like himself, who snarled at the mirth and cheerfulness of others, were the foulest weeds on the fair surface of the earth, and setting all the good of the world against the evil, he came to the conclusion that it was a very decent and respectable world after all. No sooner had he formed it than the cloud which had closed over the last picture seemed to settle on his senses and lull him to repose. One by one, the, the goblins faded from his sight, and as the last one disappeared, he sank to sleep. The day had broken when Gabriel Grubb awoke and found himself lying at full length on the flat gravestone in the churchyard, with the wicker bottle lying empty by his side and his coat and spade and lantern, all well whitened by last night's frost, scattered on the ground. The stone on which he had first seen the goblin seated stood bolt upright before him, and the grave at which he had worked the night before was not far off. Well, at first he, he began to doubt the reality of his adventures, but the acute pain in his shoulders when he attempted to rise assured him that the kicking of the goblins was certainly not ideal. So Gabriel Grubb got on his feet as well as he could for the pain in his back and brushing the frost off his coat, put it on and turned his face towards the tower. But he was an altered man and he could not bear the thought of returning to a place where his repentance would be scoffed at and his reformation disbelieved. He hesitated for a few moments and and then turned away to wander where he might and seek his bread elsewhere. The lantern, the spade and the wicker bottle were found that day in the churchyard. There were a great many speculations about the sexton's fate at first, but it was speedily determined that he'd been carried away by the goblins, and there were not wanting some very credible witnesses who had distinctly seen him whisked through the air on the back of a chestnut horse, blind of one eye, and with the hindquarters of a lion at the tail of a bear. Unfortunately, 
these stories were somewhat disturbed by the unlooked-for reappearance of Gabriel Grubb himself some ten years afterwards. A ragged, contented, romantic old man. He told his story to the clergyman and also to the mayor. And in course of time it began to be received as a matter of history, in which form it is continued down to this very day. And be the matter how it may, as Gabriel Grubb was afflicted with rheumatism to the end of his days, this story has at least one moral if it teach no better one. And that is, that if a man turns sulky and drink by himself at Christmas time, he may make up his mind to be not a bit the better for it. Let the spirits be never so good, or let them be even as many degrees beyond proof as those which Gabriel Grubb saw in the goblin's cavern.